you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. That explains all the children running. Let me give my word of thanks to Scott, who filled our pulpit last week. Uh, we have an incredible group of elders, if you didn't know that, um, and I'm exceedingly blessed to ha- serve alongside with them and thankful uh, to Scott, who filled the pulpit very well for us last week. As a sophomore in high school, I got my first letterman's jacket, and it was a really big deal. I lettered in varsity football, which means not only had I made the team, but I played enough to earn a baby blue tee, which would be sewn on the front left pocket of my jacket, declaring to the, to the world that I was a varsity football player at Tulsa Memorial High School. I wore that jacket a lot as a soft, my sophomore year because to me it declared that I had value. It meant that I was a somebody, that I'd earned my right and my role, and I continued to wear it a lot from time to time after that. But when I went to college, the jacket got put away. I took it off and put it in the closet. In fact, it's made every move with me. It's still in my closet. My wife would prefer me to throw it away. I haven't quite been able to do that yet. But I took it off and I put on a cardinal red sports coat, signifying that I was a new person and that now I was a college football player at William Jewell College. The old was put away, the new had come. And while this illustration doesn't come anywhere close to getting to what Paul is talking about before us in the book of Colossians, he does use this similar imagery, that there are things that we take off and put away, and that there are things that we put on anew because of a change that's happened. Two weeks ago, we started into the third chapter of the book of Colossians, and we'll pick it up there because it all flows together. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul reminded us in chapter 2 that we have died with Christ. Here he reminds us that we have been raised with Christ. And what this does for us as we enter into this third chapter of Colossians is it puts out this reality that there is a distinction here made for believers. That if you have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, that if you are following Jesus as your Savior, then you are to seek these things that are above. Which is to say this, that if you're not a follower of Jesus, He's not calling you to a behavioral modification plan. So as to clean yourself up, to make yourself worthy of the love of Christ, that's not at all what Paul is writing. Rather, he is asserting to you that having believed in Jesus, that you died with Him, and that you were raised with Him. Friends, this is the picture of baptism, that you died with Him, that you're put under the water, that the penalty necessary for your sin was paid in full, and that you've been raised up into a new life. And this is the theological reality of salvation. And yet there's also a physical reality in salvation in our lives that puts that theological reality on display. And the physical reality that comes out of salvation is a transformed life. That when we died, according to this passage, and frankly the whole Bible, our sin was to be put to death. Specifically, sexual sin was to be put to death, Paul writes. 
and sins of the tongue were to be put away. We walked through that two weeks ago. That our death clothes, our sin identity has died. And this morning we're taking that next step to clarify then what we put on. What then are the implications of being raised with Christ? What does it look like to seek the things that are above as we pursue Christ? And what is the picture of the new self that's given to us in verse 10? Paul clarifies that for us in these few verses, 12 through 17, which we'll walk through this morning. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, before we step too far into what we put on, church, take a close look at verse 12. Because what Paul says is put on then as God's chosen people, he's telling you something really specific. That you're putting on something because of who you are. When I lettered in football, I got a letter, I got to wear the jacket. Nobody else did. Why? Because they weren't varsity football players. You put on something because of who you are. This is as opposed to putting on something to become something. Right? This is the distinction that Paul is helping us to have an idea of. You don't become holy and be loved by doing the right things. You don't earn God's love and affection. You don't earn righteousness on your own. No, the Bible declares for us that we are holy and we are beloved because we are His. Because we belong to Him and He has declared that about us, we just sang that, did we not? What a Savior. That I was a condemned sinner and He stood in my place. And sometimes we miss that mixing that I was in this place that deserved to have my sin penalized and He took my place. And He was the Savior righteous before the Father and I took His place. That just as my sin was transmitted to him, his righteousness and holiness was transmitted to me. I am holy and beloved because he died on the cross for me. There's no effort involved in that at all. This is true for us because we are his. He has declared us holy and beloved. And because of this, because we are God's chosen people, there are things that we Put on. And the things that we put on clarify what we do. If you're a basketball player, you play basketball. If you're a quilter, you quilt. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, these are the things you put on. And Paul gives us five virtues a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness and patience this is our uniform this is what we put on ourselves as we render sin as death we put on christ we pursue compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience paul says put on a compassionate heart that means showing sensitivity to those that are suffering and those that are in need we put on kindness which means we show each other the hospitality And the grace that Jesus has for us. We put on humility. Believing and being willing to place ourselves under others. 
and being able to put them before us. And we put on meekness, not being harsh or arrogant, but showing great consideration to others. And we put on patience, which is the quality of restraining ourselves and showing long-suffering. And then Paul, giving you these five virtues, gives you then three actions that would mark believers. He says in verse 13 that we bear with one another, which literally means we put up with one another. It means that we love one another. It means that we show each other these five virtues that he's mentioned. Following that, we're called to forgive one another. Because the Lord has forgiven you, therefore we must forgive. Church, do you start to see that God has put us together as an incredibly imperfect people who will absolutely sin against one another? I always chuckle when people say, well, the church burned me. No, duh. Who has the church not burned? You know why? Because we're all sinners. Each and every one of us. And if you don't believe that, I can help explain it to you. And I'll start with me. I'm a way bigger sinner than you think. We're all here because Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We're not standing here on our own holiness. We're not standing here esteeming our own righteousness. We're standing here esteeming that Christ alone is righteous. And that he stood in my place and I'm holy and beloved because of his work, not mine. So friends, should the church burn you? And let's be fair, she will. What do you do with that? Well, Paul in Colossians would tell you, forgive because the Lord has forgiven you. And in fact, he writes it emphatically. Forgive because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Now, I just want you to think about this for just a second, because this is what Paul is doing here. I want you to think about somebody in your life who sinned against you, and I want you to put that on a scale. And then I want you to put the weight of every sin you've ever committed on the other side. Wham. That's what Paul is putting before you. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven you of every sin you've ever committed. Therefore, when a guy pokes you, you should let it go. Therefore, when somebody talks poorly about you behind your back, you should let it go. Therefore, when somebody doesn't include you in something you feel like you should have been included on, you let it go. Why? Because Jesus Christ forgave you of everything. Therefore, we forgive. And finally, in verse 14, he says we would love each other, which means that we should want the best for everyone around us. And by the way, sometimes wanting the best for others requires us to die to ourselves. I can't want the best for me and the best for you. But if I want the best for you, i got to die to me sometimes. That's a teaching we all need. Five virtues and three actions. That's what a believer in Jesus Christ is to put on according to this text. That's what we're to show each other. That's how we're supposed to live amongst each other. You want to know how you operate as a believer? This is what it looks like. You look at somebody's life and say, are they a follower of Christ? Are they wearing these things? That's what Paul is putting before us. So let's take a step back. Does that seem hard? Please nod yes. Does that seem difficult? Thanks, Nick. Absolutely it does. 
All week long, I've been pondering this passage with opportunities to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to be all these, uh, have a compassionate heart, and like, mm, failed again. Mm, didn't do it again. I've been studying this all week, and I'm failing left and right. Friends, can I remind you of this incredibly important fact? And we can't miss this. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. That you were once dead in your sin and your transgressions, but you died with Christ, and now you have been raised with Christ. What is the difference between a dead thing and a living thing? Answer, everything. Absolutely everything. A dead thing cannot will anything on its own. An alive thing can move freely. You have been raised with Christ. Therefore, seek the things that are above. Friends, this is not about earning God's love. This is not about seeking His favor. You've already been declared holy. You've already been declared beloved. But you have been raised now with Christ. You are no longer dead. This is the breath of God coming to the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. This is the prophecy. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Let me ask you this. How much did the dead guy do in that picture? Nothing. The beauty of that picture is actually the construction that happens. That there's intricate details wired into it. There are sinews that are coming together. I don't even know what that is. It's in a dictionary, I'm sure. But God puts us together. He builds us. And upon sinews, he adds flesh and skin. And he does it so that we will know that he is the Lord. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ. You are now more than alive. So seek the things that are above. Paul writes in Romans 6.4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Look what Paul writes to the Romans. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, Paul writes in Ephesians that the same power that God the Father used to raise Jesus Christ, the Son from the dead, is alive and at work in you. He writes in Romans 6 that this power that raised Christ from the dead was given to you that you might walk in the newness of life. That you might put on Christ. So how do we walk in that newness? How do we step into that? I think Paul clarifies that for us in verses 15 through 17. He gives us four imperatives, four things to do. You like a checklist. Be meek isn't always helpful. So he gives you four things. To take into consideration. To put at work. To put into process. For those who've been raised with Christ, 
those whom the Bible calls holy and beloved. This is how we seek the higher things. Paul writes in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule. Remember in Colossians 1, Paul wrote that our peace was purchased by the blood of the cross, meaning that our peace has already been established for us. It's already been given to us by Jesus Christ. It's the peace that comes from no longer living as an enemy of God. It's the peace that comes to us and teaches us that we've been reconciled to God, not temporarily, but forever. And it's the peace that allows us to be a reconciler for God. It's this peace that allows us to walk amongst people, reflecting God, being an image bearer for God. That we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Which is to say this, that in any situation where any of the aforementioned virtues are required, where you're asked to show compassion, where you're asked to show humility or even patience, the reason why any of these virtues exist suggests we're going to have to bear with one another, that we're going to have to put up with one another, that we're going to have to die to ourselves. How do we let Christ rule? Friends, it is in that moment when you let the peace of Christ rule. For if I have an opportunity to be patient and I let my pride rule, as it so often does. Or if I have an opportunity to be meek and I let my flesh rule, as it so often does. I am living like a dead man who is still in his sin, denying that I died with Christ and failing to be raised with Christ. For if Jesus Christ can put up with me and with all of my shortcomings and all of my flaws and all of my failures, then certainly he can raise me up to love you in your struggles. So it opens up this possibility that the peace of Christ should rule in my life instead of my pride. That I must let parts of me die, go to the grave, that I might be raised up. Let the peace of Christ rule in us. For we were called into one body. You could even say we were called into one family. It's really the same idea. One of the blessings of being married is that my wife thinks differently than I do. If I were to say she's my better half, that is not an understatement. Every job I've ever walked into, people on my way out have said, you can go, but we're keeping her. It's not a shocker here to me, I get it. But the reality of her being different than me means that she thinks about things differently than I do, and it means that she loves our kids differently than I do. And she parents them a little differently than I do. And so she thinks about all this with a different process that I come to it, which is to say that sometimes when she says stuff to our kids, I go, ooh, I need to do that. Now she's teaching our five-year-old, and I'm thinking, that's true for me. I can't confess that very often. I need to hear this. The other day I heard her tell our kids something that struck my heart. 
She told our children if they can't love each other well, then they have no business playing with their friends. If they can't love each other well, if Pierce can't honor Anna Kate, if Anna Kate can't honor Claire, if Claire can't honor Pierce, then they have no business going outside and interacting with these other people because the first most important thing is that they figure out how to love and honor each other well. I was so struck by that. You know why? Because that's exactly what Paul is writing here. That we are a family and therefore we should love each other well. Because we are one body. Therefore, when you come to these virtues, if there's anyone in the world where we ought to treat this way, it ought to be us. And if you don't have a clarity to us is, please look to your left. Please look to your right. Please look behind you. These are the people that God is calling you to be virtuous to. To forgive. Not just a stranger that you bump into in the movie theater. Oops, sorry. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Friends, you have been raised with Christ. People who have wounded you badly, you're called to forgive. Why? Because Christ has raised you. We're to treat each other like family. And not like the modern motif of family. Where we treat each other poorly. Because that's where we give our worst energy to. No, the biblical motif of family, where we love each other with a love that is true and pure, and we give our best to one another. Friends, this is letting the peace of Christ rule in our lives when we let our pride die, we let our flesh die, and we are raised up. Paul continues, in its own sentence, by the way, and be thankful. This is the second imperative. You want to know how you add these virtues, how you add these values to your life? Paul gives you four commands. Let the peace of Christ rule. Which means let Jesus rule your life. And be thankful. Paul, in the first chapter of Colossians, writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why do we thank Him? Because he saved us from our sins. Because he's called us his sons and his daughters. Because he's brought us into the kingdom of light. On an eternal scale, everything that matters, he took care of. And all that doesn't, won't matter. Like a trillion years from now, the fact that your three-year-old cuts her own hair won't matter. A medical diagnosis that you detest will not matter. That our present sufferings will not compare to the glory that we will receive in eternity. The reality of salvation is greater than any suffering we will ever taste. Paul writes again in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks then in all circumstances. I'm not a smart man, but last time I checked, all included everything. It means your best days and your worst. It means the things you're the most excited to brag about, the things you put on Facebook and Instagram, the things you want everyone to know is true about you, and your worst days. The things you pray nobody finds out. We give 
thanks for those, Paul says. He exhorts us to, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You know what God's will is for you? That you be thankful. That you thank Him for everything. Knowing and believing that somehow He will work all of this out for your good. Which means you don't have to see it. You don't have to understand it. You can even really struggle to believe it. And friends, you can even doubt it. All of those in the realm of Scripture are perfectly fine let me say that again. You don't have to understand it, see it, under, or you can even doubt it. But we give thanks because this life isn't everything. And everything that matters eternally, He took care of. Friends, Paul writes to us, if we're to be these kind of people, if we're to seek the things that are above, that we let the peace of Christ rule, and we be thankful, third imperative, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Earlier this week, I read a tweet by a pastor in Florida that I greatly admire. This is what he wrote. He said, you won't get into Harvard on accident. You won't run a marathon on accident. And you won't grow in the sanctification of Jesus Christ on accident. Which is to say this. In Jesus Christ, through justification, we are positionally sanctified. Let me put that in way less Christianese. Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for our sins, but he earned a place for us in the kingdom where we are seen as co-heirs of eternity. That the Father doesn't just look at us in our sin, but looks at us through the work of Christ and sees us as holy and blameless. Let's make it more practical. That God doesn't just forgive you your sins and leave you in a neutral position God forgives you your sins and calls you his own, his own child. He adopts you. Says you're his. And because of that, you are positionally sanctified, which means God the Father looks at you. He doesn't look at your works. He sees his son. That's positional sanctification. True of anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, that our position is earned by Christ, and by that alone. And yet the Word of God calls us to progressive sanctification, which in less Christianese terms means that we should set disciplines in our lives that we would look more and more and more like Jesus. Let's step into this. Because as I step into this and tell you, let the Word of God dwell richly in your lives, Quickly, I'm going to tell you that that roughly means you should spend more time in your Bible. Unless you come at me and tell me I'm trying to put Pharisaic law on top of you, I will tell you there's a substantial difference between me encouraging legalism and me asking you to be disciplined. That's a really huge biblical difference. That if I want to get legalistic on you, I'm going to tell you all to wear jeans that are slightly too long and unbuttoned shirts because looking like me is important. Most of you would agree that's a bad idea. 
However, if I encourage you in the profound disciplines of the faith, that's called discipline. You will not run a marathon without training for it. You will not run the race without training for it. You cannot let the word of Christ dwell in you richly if you're not reading his word. It can't be done. I'll let Warren Worsby give it to us the hard way. He wrote, many saved people cannot honestly say that God's word dwells in their hearts richly because they do not take time to read, study, or memorize it. Paul says, if you want to grow in Jesus Christ, if you want to show humility, if you want to show meekness, if you want to forgive one another, if you want to love one another well, you let the peace of Christ rule. You are thankful. And you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which means you give the Word of God a home in your life. I read this week this quote. He who dwells in a house is the master of the house. Meaning the one who lives in the house is in charge of the house. Does the word of God dwell within you? Does it have a home? Is it something you're cherishing and making a place for? Are you spending time in his word? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are you to become more humble, more patient, more forgiving? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are you to seek the things that are above? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are you to be empowered to live a life that has been raised with Christ? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me read verse 16 to you again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Please note, it does not say, come to church and let Pastor Ben teach you. I'm really thankful. I'd be tired. It says, teach one another, admonish one another. Paul says to the Christians in Colossae that you would teach one another, that you would admonish one another, that as you spend time in God's word, we would look around and instruct one another. It's, hey man, I just want to let you know, this is what God's word says, I want to encourage you in this. I see this in you and you, man, that's really incredible and I just want to encourage you to keep on with that. Wait for it, that we would admonish one another. See, quickly, somebody's going to say, hey, don't judge me. Actually, the Bible says admonish one another, which means that I look at your life. Christians are encouraged to do this, by the way, and say, hey, you're blowing it in this area. And I want to love you enough to say, you're blowing it in this area. Teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. See, we're a community. It's only in the modern days that we take some moron and put him in front. And, and make him look like the one who's got it together, where all of you come and sit here to listen to this talking head. 
I promise you, you are far more spiritually mature than me. Can you please teach one another and admonish one another and encourage and exhort one another? This is how the church grows. This is how we grow up in Jesus Christ. This is his exhortation to us. Not only that we would let Christ rule in our hearts and that we would be thankful, but that we would let God's word do something so significant in our lives that it would dwell, it would make a home, and that God's word in my life wouldn't just stop there, but I would see God's word as not only doing something in me, but the potential to work in you. That as I spend time in God's word, it's not just about me being encouraged or edified. Friends, we've got to stop being a people who are merely convicted. I've heard so many times in the last week, man, I was just so convicted by that truth. Well, that's cool. Did you do anything with it? Because I don't think the Bible was given to us just so we go, mmm, that's true. Oh, that's good. Man, that just hit me. Well, that's swell. Does it say let the word of God hit you? We're not called to be Convicted. We're called to be changed. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we're encouraged to gather together. And by the way, this has nothing of Sunday morning. It's not talking about the Sabbath here. It means that we would gather and we would sing. Worship is singing, that we would sing psalms, literally music with instruments, which seems to suggest that if you've got a musical ability, that the reality could happen, that you could have people in your house, and that you could play whatever it is you play, and people could worship. Whether that's an an oboe, or a flute, or a tuba, or a piano, whatever that is, that you would sing songs with some instrumentation. That we would sing hymns. That we would gather together. And by the way, this isn't like songs written in the 1400s. Because the 1400s came way after Colossians was written. That these are hymns. That these are biblical truths. That we'd remind each other of these theological truths and spiritual songs. Meaning, I want to tell you the incredible stuff that Jesus Christ has done in my life. That we would declare through song... God's faithfulness to one another. This is what he exhorts us to do here. That we would be a people who have God's word so richly built in our lives that we exhort one another, we admonish one another, and we worship with one another. This is not a Sunday morning text. This is a Tuesday afternoon text and a Thursday evening text and a Friday morning text, and a Saturday afternoon text. This is God's people being God's people all the time. Verse 17, he writes in a fourth imperative that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We let the peace of Christ rule. We be thankful And we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing. And finally, in verse 17, whatever you do, that seems to kind of encompass everything, 
Whatever you do, in word or deed, whether you say it with your mouth or you live it out with your hands, feet, or any other bodily motion, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul sums it all up by saying everything you do, do it for the reputation of Jesus. That's what in the name of the Lord Jesus means. It means that everything coming out of your mouth testifies to Jesus. Let it be everything coming out of your mouth be for His reputation. That everything you do with your hands, let it be for His reputation. The New Testament doesn't have a detailed order of rules, only this. Whatever you do, do it for the reputation of Jesus. Because you have been raised with Christ. Because you've been raised with Christ, you were given a new self. You were given a new robe, one covered with the blood of Christ that already declares that you're holy. That already declares that you are beloved. Friends, be a family to one another. Love each other exceptionally well. There is nothing that will testify to the world more than us loving each other well. I've long said the best expression of a church would be a people who gathered together who were so awkward and weird together that people would say, how do those people get along? And the only answer would be Jesus. So if you have a friend who's weird and has a mohawk and covered with tattoos and wears leather pants all the time, please invite him in. We desperately need that guy in our church. If you have friends who don't meet any mold of what a church ought to look like, please invite them in. For we need every expression of God-saved, God-fearing people in our body so that it could be said that it is Christ at work here and not men. Paul's saying we have been raised with Christ. So we are an image bearer of Christ. That we declare Christ We declare salvation through our lives, doing everything in His name. Paul is exhorting us here in this third chapter, in light of all of the theology of the first two, that we would be raised with Christ. That we would put some things away. We'd put sin away. We'd put the dead man away. And we would be raised with Christ breathing a new life, wearing a new robe, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, being thankful, letting His Word dwell in us richly, and doing everything in a way that represents Him. Let me pray for us. Father, Your Word does not call us to a behavioral modification plan. It doesn't say do better. What it does tell us is that you died in our place. That you took the penalty that my life deserved. And that I stand in your place in the throne room. So that when God the Father looks at me in the muck and mire of my sin, he sees your son. Father, that is a truth that is eternal. 
whether we've been walking with you for a long time or a short time, whether we believe in you and are neck deep in sin or not, Father, it is a truth. You love us. You are pursuing us. Father, may we as a church be a people that your word declares to us that we'd be alive, that we would seek the things that are above, that we'd lead a raised life. Paul exhorts us to do that, Father, that we'd be a, a people who let Christ rule and are thankful, who dig into your word and do everything in a way that represents you. Father, I pray, knowing that none of us can do this of our own accord, dead things can't do anything, but Father, you have made us alive. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, would you move in us? Would you rebuild our sinews? Would you give us flesh? And would you put skin on top of all of it that we could be better representation of who you are and what you accomplished at the cross? Father, we love you. And we're so thankful for your son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.